All right, friends. Today, we tackle Everest. As a PT, this diagnosis is the Newman to your Seinfeld. It's the Voldemort, Voldemort to your Harry Potter. It's the annoying next-door neighbor of the PT world that you see way too much, that typically catches you bending over doing yard work, and that prevents you from being productive at all. Today, we tackle low back pain. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to Therapists in Motion, listeners. Uh, I'm Jen Lee. I'm here today with Paul Guyano, Dan Mariofsky, and then Mr. Andrew Walquist from Houston. How's it going, guys? Great. Doing well. Glad to be here. All right. All right. So, as alluded to in the intro, we're talking about low back pain today. Uh, so I did some research on low back pain, the prevalence of low back pain. In 2009, they put out a study that said, on average, 80% of Americans are going to experience low back pain at some point through their lives. In 2014, that number jumps up to like 90s or above. And this is going to account for anywhere from like over $100 billion in annual costs. One bazillion dollars? One million dollars. <laughs> A hundred billion dollars annually. So it's a huge deal. Everybody's going to have this at some point in their lives. My first question, you guys, why do you think this is so prevalent? Well, I would say it's probably really prevalent because people sit a lot. They become overweight. And... You know, as we were alluding to in our pre-podcast discussion, when you look at Google for things to do for back exercises or core strengthening exercises, you're going to get yourself in a potentially bigger mess than you would have had you just done nothing, (laughs) right? Um, So, you know, I think that's probably one of the things that would lead to this increase as well as poor lifting mechanics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Dan is dead Something on. Something that I feel like with... Go ahead, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I think Dan's dead on. I mean, we are designed to move. We're just creatures that should be moving. And so frequently our jobs nowadays don't allow us to actually move, put us in positions that are challenging. And then we try to solve all kinds of things with a simple pill or a simple orthotic or a simple etc. I mean, we have foot issues that we then put one over stability you know insert into our shoe and then change how shoe mechanics happen which has an impact on our back you have a knee that doesn't do well and it hurts you toss a knee brace on a stiff sturdy one that and change the mechanics onto our back we have lots of things we have pain and issues that are trying to warn us that there's a problem we just take a medication and then keep going with our daily activities and never improve whatever is actually again putting stress on our backs plus weight food all the other things we have an issue it's just a big problem in today's society yeah, I love the movement variables that you threw in there, Paul. I mean, something that I learned in the, at the Gray Institute, I love their phrasing of anything with the low back was referred to the crossroads of the body. I mean, the, low, the lumbar spine specifically is the center of the body's movement universe that you can easily divide lower extremity exercises, anything south of that, and you can divide up, like upper body exercises, everything north of that. So all this, whether it's a lower body exercise or an upper body exercise, the lumbar spine is going to say something about it. And if it's not a healthy lumbar spine, then it's, you're going to run into some issues. And so that, I think that's some of the challenge in treating it too, because 
a lot of daily movements involve the lumbar spine, even if you don't think that they do. Yeah, I joke a lot when I uh, talk about and help others to treat the, lum- the low back that I will treat anything and everything except for the low back in my exactly. treatment for the low back and henceforth treat it by not treating it. Exactly. So we're actually taking a little detour. The first couple, if you guys have listened to this Google PT series thus far, we've looked up Google exercises, your common exercises for different diagnoses. And thus far, we've done adhesive capsulitis and plantar fasciitis. We're going to do that, but not this time. We're going to give you a little teaser and do that next time. Today, we're going to talk about what is low back pain? Why is it so prevalent? And what makes us different? So, guys, what goes into your assessment? What goes into your treatment for somebody with low back pain? Why should somebody come to you and not go to Google? Yeah, Paul, go into a little bit more detail on why you say whenever you come see that script that says low back pain, why you don't even think about treating it. it definitely so I, I think you touched on a really good and important word earlier and it's crossroads i mean it really is an area that's going to connect our our pelvis to the rest of our body connect the lower extremity and upper extremity it's going to put everything together and as a result so often it is the one where when we look at actual mechanics look at actual function for whatever activity it is we have a number of things that have to happen in the right sequential order to the right amplitude for there to be an efficient stress distribution across the body And so frequently, it's almost impossible for anyone to be fully efficient at all areas. The question then becomes, who is the one that takes the big brunt of it? And we will frequently find that across uh, what we call transitional zones. So like a really good and easy example is you go from the C-spine to the T-spine. There's a huge mechanical change when we have the ribs attached. It's going to change how things move. Well, the back just has a whole lot of complex factors. I want to look at how is their foot moving? How are their hips moving? Knee plays a bit of a role, but they're kind of stuck in the mercy of the hip and the foot, in my opinion. How is the T-spine moving? How is everything moving? And what is the back doing as a result to pick up the slack? Because I tend to find that's the one that always ends up being overworked, trying to accommodate its buddies who aren't helping out, and then it pays the price for it down the road. I'm going to date myself and i'm quite actually shocked that i remember this threat this this statistic uh, or this point from physical therapy school but uh you know we all had the same biomechanical instructor in pt school dr dr threlkeld who spoke in sonometers on a frequent basis (laughs) (laughs) but but he also uh, he, he spent more time than i probably appreciated in pt school talking about joints that and degrees of freedom of movement in specific joints, right? Well, what joints in the body have the most degrees of freedom of motion? The SI joint. Oh, wait, I <laughs> thought that was fused. <laughs> it's it's a not, that's a joke, people. That's not a serious answer. Please right. don't think that's it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, when, when he started to talk about joints that have the most degrees of freedom is where I'm going to start my assessment of somebody with low back pain. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to do cardinal plane active range of motion and or repeated motion testing because Mm -hmm. I think that that is an important component of our assessment. But that's not the only thing that I'm going to do when I assess somebody. And, you know, I mean, as we talk about big rocks or we talk about probable suspects or we talk about... um hypomobile segments versus hypermobile segments, I think that's then where you can go back and say, well, from a PT school understanding, what are the joints that have the most degrees of freedom and how do those regions 
impact what occurs at the lumbar spine. I like it. Uh, this is going to be harken back to PT school day. So I'm going to take you back to my school because I didn't go to Creighton like y'all special fancy people. Uh, <laughs> but I remember uh, Shirley Sarman actually saying form follows function in school. And so, like Dan said, people are sitting all of the time. You're going to go ahead and lock down the pelvis in a seated position, inhibit the hips from being able to help at all. And the first thing that's going to move, especially in somebody who, like Paul said, you can't move your T-spine or something like that, your low back's going to be the first to move. So you get this excessive mobility at the lumbar spine, which doesn't have the most degrees of freedom, I would guess, in the body. I wouldn't guess. I know. It doesn't have the most degrees of freedom in the body. I'd agree with that. (laughs) Okay. So how do you treat or assess your low back pain patients then? Well, I have a question before we go to that. So... You made a comment about how that lumbar spine might start to have a hypermobility. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that us as a profession from a philosophical standpoint probably wouldn't think about because we see so many people with quote unquote poor lumbar flexion, poor mm-hmm. lumbar extension. But is that really lumbar spine hypomobility? Or is their lumbar spine potentially unstable that then is potentially causing a symptom, which then if they do some of these Google PT exercises, like Jen said, we're going to talk about in a subsequent episode, Mm -hmm. um, is that going to, that hypo versus hypermobility, I kind of want you guys to take a little bit of a minute and reflect upon that thought process there. And I even want to expand upon that one uh, quick second in that, there could be a hypomobility that is a hypermobility. And what I mean by that is, right? (laughs) You like where that one is? (laughs) So let's just say you have that low back pain patient that has, Jen talked about bending over in the yard. They bend over, they have instant pain. Everything seizes up in their back. They come in with, oh, these muscles are so tight. Just massage my back out. They have that huge tension back there that is probably going to impact how they move. Even maybe after the acute phase is over, they're going to have a ton of tissue tension that is impacting their movement, making them grossly hyper, hypo, sorry, hypo mobile. However, it took extra stress in the first place because it was hyper mobile and had too much mobility, hence causing the muscles to seize down and the results. So just because your patient comes in and doesn't move well or is super tight, that doesn't instantly mean they were a hypo mobile individual. They might've been hyper forever and just Straw broke the camel's back and everything seized up on them. Yeah. I'll tell my patients, especially my acute ones on the first day, I, and this is just for me, people may disagree with me, I don't do a ton the first day um, because I don't think if you're in that acute situation, you're not moving how you normally would move anyway. And I want to actually get you to the point where we've calmed things down enough and I can see, take you through a functional movement assessment in at a time where you're not super, super acute and you can move and show me what is normal for your mobility, I have to get you to that point first because pain is going to inhibit that. It's going to prohibit that from from being able to happen. So I totally agree. And that's one of the things that I dig into in my subjective on the first day. Is this normal? Have you been dealing with this for a long time? Is this acute? And then I tailor my objective based off of that. Pretty casual listener to this and, and someone that's relatively fresh out of PT school, much less if you're a patient currently dealing with low back pain, maybe listening to this. What you guys are saying is really awesome food for thought, but 
how easy of a sell is that to a patient that says, hey, I am coming in with, in with this back pain. You want to fix me, but yet you don't even want to address it. Do you find that being a challenge to you, whether it's mentoring a new PT grad or to a patient that is critically thinking about their success in PT? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I have a, a physical therapy student right now who actually is a class. Uh, it was a referral from well, Paul and I's classmates, but is also a frequent and avid podcast listener to our series. So I'm going to give him a shout out uh, because he. I, I know that he actually listens, and if he doesn't listen to this episode, there will be serious consequences during his clinical rotation. Um, <laughs> oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> but you know, him and I have kind of already started to talk about. There are some patients who walk in, and to your point, Andrew, they get it. They get that it isn't necessarily their back that is causing their issue, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that's where some of us can really thrive in those conversations with those patients because it's quote-unquote easy, right? It's it's the staples easy button. But what I've started to talk about with with my student as well as – with other people when I mentor is, you know, there are some patients where you quote unquote have to touch their pain. Right. And, and, and you may have to, in this situation, Andrew, you may have to touch that person's pain, but then very, be very diligent about how you're going to impact that area where they have quote unquote pain. Mm-hmm. And that may be through exercise. Most likely that's going to be through a lot of your exercises. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that's necessarily a wrong approach to take, uh, because we do know that there is power in the healing touch of a hand, yep. whether you're doing a FMR technique, an IPA technique, uh, a postural restoration technique, uh, a Barala technique, you name it. Mm-hmm. I think there is some power in the healing touch of that hand. And so it, it's not necessarily a bad thing to touch that patient's pain. Yeah, I agree. And I would say I always I, I like to ask questions to lead people to their own answers in their head. So if it's my patient and they are acute, I'm saying, okay, what can't you do that you used to be able to do? Up until when could you do those things and when did it change? Basically, do you feel like you're moving normally right now? And no one says, yes, I feel like I'm moving normally. So my job is to assess your normal movement and figure out why this is an issue so that I can set you up with a program to independently control this for as long as possible. And with people that have chronic issues, you're going to probably want a need to come back once to twice a year for a tune-up, like people should, and see how your movement and your stability is progressing. But in the meantime, you're not going to move normally. And that makes sense to you, right? Yes, makes sense to me. So I have to change right now. I have to go into a different perspective and see what 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 is this pain? Where is it coming from? Get control of that, get you feeling better so that we can then reassess you, look at your normal mobility and move on from there. I think you guys are dead on. I mean, sometimes you just have to touch the pain. You have to be able to show the patient you can address the area. And I will do a lot of what Jen says where I will try to dig a little bit further and ask questions. And obviously it could go a number of different ways. But if you see that person that has had that chronic reoccurring issue, like Jen said, a lot of times I come in, yeah, and I go to the chiropractor and I get some relief, or I go get a massage and I get some relief, or I come to PT and these exercises and I get relief. And then I just ask a simple question, good, how long does it take to calm down and how frequently is this happening? And nine mm-hmm. times out of 10, it takes longer and longer to calm down. It's happening more frequently and more frequently. And then I'll ask the blunt question, so are they really 
are they really impacting you the way that they should and really getting you to be independent with this? Or are they just managing symptoms and it continues worsening? And where does that eventually lead to for you? Let's look at the bigger picture and see why this is happening. Step one is calm you down. Step one is get you feeling better and being you again. That's going mm-hmm. to the touching the pain. Step two is why is this occurring? If it's not a chronic issue and it's a true acute, I don't really say, well, let's again go back to that I bent over and pick something up question. Have you never bent over and picked something up in your entire life? Is this the first experience for you? Unlikely. I mean, my first it might time be. Bender over. My first first bender over. This is, oh this is going down the wrong hole, <laughs> metaphorically and physically, way too quickly. Oh, oh no. Oh. Um, anyway. Oh my gosh. So, you guys asked them, you know, you've done it before, right? And I was, yeah, of course. And it hurt this time, right? Yeah. What well, did you do something wrong? typically no okay well let's take a look and see again why did this happen why have you done this one activity thousands of times in your life and then suddenly it hurt this time not everyone grasps that it sometimes gives me the opportunity to look at the full body assess and then it really helps me establish myself as knowledgeable in full movement of the body and that just helps me with buy-in especially for the patients that are struggling to understand why they should even bother looking at more than just massage my back east in my back and make me better right i think it's interesting that most patients have questioned or not even have questioned. They want to know, why is this happening? That's a million-dollar question. Why do I have this for any diagnosis? Um, But they don't understand. It's very easy for them to go to the what are you treating to make it better, not necessarily the why. So having the conversation of the body is a human domino effect. It is built off of what is your repetitive motions what sustained postures you're in all the time what is your given flexibility are you feeding that are you feeding your stability understanding that is i think fairly easy if it's if it's given to a patient in small bits where they can kind of understand yes this is this is a domino effect and i can see that being the case people understand that and then they're even bought in more into therapy you're not going to get those patients that are oh i feel better after three sessions boom i'm gone um, they're going to understand, okay, I do feel better, but I also remember what you said. We actually need to go back and look at why this happened in the first place. So better buy-in. Yeah. So I love what you guys are saying about how you're like taking this broad brush approach and trying to figure out what is really going on and that, you know, different isolated occurrences of mechanism of injury might not be telling you the full story about how they've been functioning prior at the same time, doesn't it seem like you're opening a big can of worms? Like, what aren't you looking at whenever you're treating low back pain? If you're, if I was a new grad PT, like, okay, I got a person with low back pain. You guys are basically telling me I got to look at everything and touch everything and do everything all all at one time. Like, mm-hmm. where where does your guy where, where does your mind go in terms of trying to wrestle with this huge concept and and figuring out where you start? That's where my passion lies, and that's I would come back to you with a question: Who else is going to do it? Nobody else in our healthcare field is going to look at somebody and think about past medical history and think about overall mobility and what is your daily life and how has that changed and why, why, why would I get to this moment? I think that's one of our, that's like a spotlight of our profession is the ability to look back and see, yeah, I do need to understand the entire body. I need to understand total mobility and I need to understand it specifically to you. I would answer that with, <clears throat> again, reflecting back on the time that I've already had with with my student Josh is you don't have to figure it out on day one. You don't have to have all the answers on day one. And he, he literally looked at 
myself and, and Sarah yesterday and said, but that's not what school taught me. And I said, well, you, you have to understand what their purpose is. Their purpose is to say, yes, you do need to come up with a physical therapy diagnosis. And that's not wrong. But they're not anticipating that you're going to be treating that patient for 10 to 12 visits. And every single time that patient comes in, you should be doing some sort of little mini assessment. Even that that's as simple as watching how they walk to, the, to your location in the clinic once they arrive, right? And so he kind of took a step back and he was just like, man, that's kind of refreshing to know that I don't have to figure it out all on day one. Um, so that, that's kind of where I would take that that question, Andrew, is to say, you know what? Yeah, there is a lot to look at. But as long as I can find something that the patient can do and start with to help them be more successful and or alleviate that acute pain and or start to create automatic and core, core engagement after that first session, that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to continue to dig and look further because I'm not nearly as smart as Paul or Jen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I also want to look at it and let's just say, you know, one of the struggles I have sometimes is you take a course, take a content course, or I go to a coach or something. I learn some new technique and I'm like, man, I wish I knew that for a patient blank. I wish I knew that year ago. And this goes back to what Andrew said. You know, what do you do as a new grad when maybe you are out and you can't look at everything? PT school Paul wouldn't have known what to do with the coccyx. PT school Paul wouldn't want to touch the coccyx and would laugh if you ever told him that you're supposed to treat the coccyx. Mm -hmm. PT school Paul didn't think visceral mobilizations really had that much impact on the individual. I now wish I knew those techniques, but the truth is... I don't expect anyone to come out of school being able to address the neural, full neural system appropriately, being able to address visceral mobility, being able to address the true challenges of the pelvic ring and all those different things, the pelvic girdle. That's not something a student's going to do. So I'm going to say two things to him. One, you're going to help people no matter what. Yes, there might be that one obscure, unbelievably complex patient that has had failed operations, and you know where this is going, that you don't really make a big impact on. That, that's going to happen. It happens to all of us. It still happens to us. But for the most part, maybe you can't make them 100% better, whatever that might actually be, if that's even physically attainable. I can guarantee you're going to make a 75% improvement. I guarantee you if you just do the simple things, get some dynamic core stability, get them moving in the way that I know you understand the human body to move, you will make an improvement. And I'm willing to bet you the second part of that is they're going to appreciate the time you spent, the concern you showed them, your ability to look at the chain. And when it does come back later, because it probably will, they'll come back to you because they've established a relationship and you've established your expertise. And when it comes back two years later, and they come back to you two years later and you have two more years worth of knowledge, you can then take a look at that deeper piece you didn't know before because you are a developing expert and will never stop developing. So don't be afraid to make the best improvement you can. Utilize resources around you, get co-treats, get mentors. But if you're stuck in a small clinic by yourself, you will help people feel better. They will appreciate it and they will come back and you will be able to do even more improvements the next time you see them. Yeah. Um, that's awesome encouragement. Yeah, it I mean, is. <laughs> for, for, yeah, I mean, because it, it takes some of the load off. I think some one of the bigger things that intimidated me um, initially my first few years after PT school was all the things that could go potentially wrong with it back from a medical diagnosis point of view. I mean, thinking about how many ICD-9s and how many ICD-10s relate to lumbar pain, 
is it a strain? Is it a is it a uh, is it a sprain? Is it a um, arthropathy? Is it a is it some sort of you know, tension? I mean, I mean, you can keep on going the structural models down really really deep and finding that a lot of things can be pain generators to the back end. And how are you supposed to filter through all that and place all those structures into movement? And that's where I love then flipping the table and be like, let's not get overwhelmed with the structure. As you guys are saying, what can you find that that patient can do successfully with movement? And then all of a sudden, if you think about, okay, I'll take the movement pathway and think, mm-hmm. okay, with every single patient I have with low back pain, I essentially have six movement options. Mm-hmm. And so you have, of course, the three planes of motion. And then you have the um, the two segments of above the back and below the back. So whenever someone, um, whenever I figured out that you can actually say, okay, I know that the pelvis can move in all three planes of motion. Let me see if I can take the pelvis through a 3D movement assessment. Can it go anterior, posterior tilt? Can it go right shear, left shear? Can it go right rotation, left rotation? Okay, so those are three different options I have of moving their pelvis. Which one of those make their pain worse? Which one makes their pain better? All of a sudden, I'm like, okay, there's some sort of structure to this. And can I do that same movement variable with the thoracic spine? What if I can take into reflection, extension, right side bend, left side bend, right rotation, left rotation, then what information do I have with that? In my mind, I can put it on a grid. I can have sagittal, frontal, transverse on the x-axis, and on the y-axis, I have pelvis, and then I have T-spine, and then all those, anytime I'm moving either one of those in any of the planes, I am getting the lumbar spine to move. And through that, I feel like I can pretty much find success in one of those six different options. And more often than not, even when someone's coming with acute pain, I can find even more than one. And so I feel like there's a lot of exercises that whenever uh, that I learned in PT school and rotations that were so stuck in one plane and that I was frustrated that I didn't know if it was a, a neurological pain. I wasn't sure if it was some inert tissue pain. And then all of a sudden, once I started to see, okay, I can add some movement structure to this, how that really gave me the confidence in moving someone that came in half doubled over in pain and have them walk out saying, Hey, you know, I, I'm moving a little bit better. Am I having them walk out, skipping and jumping and curing them? I'm not as good as Paul and Dan and Jen like that, but I'm at least giving them one step down the right direction to where we can we can take care of them the next time that they come in. You know about my skip guarantee? All my patients skip when they leave my clinic? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say PT school Jen would have gotten lost in the weeds with all of that. Like, what is, what is going on? What tissue is irritated? I'm supposed to know this versus this versus this versus this. And um, thank you for mentioning the, the different planes and successful ranges because the easiest way for me to understand that I've been told is um, if you get a knot in a necklace, do you pull on it or do you slack it to start to get it to loosen up and actually work through it? You actually slack it. You go the direction of ease. So when you're working with somebody, if you go the direction of ease for them – your body is going to naturally start to try and calm down, try to heal itself, and give it better motion. And then that's going to connect the, dot, the dots so you can move through those planes that you're talking about a little bit easier. I just want to reiterate the importance of what Andrew was talking about there previously. And it goes back into what Dan was saying, where you don't have to know everything on day one. So often therapists go through and they're trying to figure out what is the painful structure? What is the dysfunctional structure? What is the medical diagnosis? And like Andrew said, there are so many things. And the more you learn, the more you realize it's rarely one thing. It's typically 17 things that are all having an issue for the individual. And it quite like, it quite frankly comes down to 
does it really even matter? Again, we are looking at movement. We are trying to be movement specialists. Um, So just recently, my wife's been complaining of some foot pain. And she was pointing to her foot and saying, do you think it's posterior tip? And I looked at her and I said, I don't care. Now, if you... (laughs) Good husband. Great husband. Reflectively telling your spouse you don't care about something (laughs) impacting them, maybe not the best choice of words I've ever utilized. I should this out there too my wife's a pt so she yeah right she has some grasp of this but i I didn't care because quite frankly i don't care what the painful structure is i said you want to take a look at your foot i'll take a look at how your foot is moving what is not efficient with your foot's movement and i will try to address what is efficient and that will take stress off whatever anatomical structure it is that is now giving you pain if you're having enough pain obviously you can't do something yes and i'm more than happy to take a look at what's painful and try to make that better but i'm just looking at motion that's what's going to be necessary and that can help really ease when you have that super complex patient with 37 different painful spots and you have no clue what they can do and everything hurts don't try to tackle what the problem is just look at them moving and see what you can do to improve their movement yeah and i'm gonna make a quick plug again i I had a co-treat with one of our therapists a couple weeks ago, and as I walked into the clinic and the patient walked in, the patient asked if I had looked at her MRI results yet, and I said, no, and she said, why not? And I said, because it doesn't, that only tells me one piece of information. Now, I'm not discrediting that imaging results can alter how we approach a patient. That's not what I'm saying in in this situation, but- what I said to the patient and, and the therapist that I was co-treating with is I want to see you move and how you're moving. And as I was working through things with the therapist and, and her and I were reflecting on what she had been treating, we just made a slight perspective change. And when we made that slight perspective change, I saw this in this therapist who has some experience kind of be like, oh my gosh. And and it looked like I unweighted her Mm -hmm. from being able to not hyper-focus on the low back and or the hip, but to really put it all in that global perspective. And it was really cool to then see the therapist start to have new, fresh, different way of approaching this patient that ultimately will lead to the patient's success. Awesome. In a way, you're playing to your strengths, Dan, because if we're movement specialists, why wouldn't we want to keep with with the movement stuff that we're good at and trying to help that patient move a little bit better? Another point to what you said about the MRI and, and offloading that, a lot of times in 11, patients say the exact same thing to me or another clinician say same thing to me. I say, you know, an MRI is a great picture. I mean, essentially, that is what an MRI is. And so... I said, if you went to your car mechanic and you showed him a picture of your engine, would you say, would you be able to ask him if it works well, if it runs well? You know, and obviously if there's some, if if the engine is missing, the mechanic would easily say, yeah, no, I'm sure that doesn't work. (laughs) But, you know, that's not really what happens with MRIs. A lot of times it doesn't show anything grossly wrong. And that picture may change as you get to move. And that's where it'd be great if we could have upright standing functional MRIs that show us how things are really moving and how tissues are responsive, but that technology does not exist. And that's currently the technology that we use the most of in our outpatient practice um, from an imaging point of view is an MRI, which as great as they are, is still a picture. I think I get a different story with movement because it is a series of pictures all put together, a film of movement rather than something static. Yeah, absolutely. I, 
that was, I don't know how many people just had light bulbs go off in their head with what you just said. That was brilliant. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still stuck on the picture car mechanic. I've just got like <laughs> degenerative piston disease now stuck in <laughs> So disease. I'm, yeah, I didn't get past that and I, I just blanked out. I don't know what happened since that point in time. Sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so for those of you who want us to kind of get into the weeds of disc versus facet versus degenerative piston disease and degenerative joint disease and spondylolisthesis and all of that, in addition to looking globally, what about people that have had abdominal surgeries in the past? What if the core doesn't fire well? What if it's not an actual mechanical back pain? What if it's from somewhere else? We're going to get into that, giving you a little teaser on part two of Google PT low back pain. Anything else you guys want to say, Ra? And I think it also in that second part, we'll also kind of highlight more specifically some of the findings on Google yes, yes. related to those conditions and say, wait, and I'm sure a lot of you have done this already of say, wait, those are the exercises you're doing. No, those are contradicting each other. And that's why you're worse than you were before you found Google. Um, so yeah, I think that's a pretty good plug on part two of the Google low back. And there could probably be multiple parts of Google low back because of yeah. the, the impact that it has on our society, the impact it has on us as, as treating therapists and how we can assist to start making a, 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 a cultural change on, on addressing low back pain. Yeah. So as always guys, so essentially it looks like we'll, Oh, so I said, so essentially it looks like you're, we're going to be learning some strategies on how to take our patients' bodies for a test drive, so to speak. Yeah. I like this car. Boom. I like it. I like it. Um, so yeah. As always, thanks for listening, guys. If you have any questions or any feedback, we would definitely appreciate it. Therapists in motion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>